going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sandscast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensen. Tim, how's it going, sir? Cold as shit. I am? What's the temperature in Calgary this week? Uh, negative 25 Celsius. Any snow? On the ground, yes. Jesus, it's just like here. Like, it just starts snowing the last day or two. It's not like there at all. It's not like here at all. No, but I'll give you that. But apparently this week is supposed to be in the minus 10s. So, Tim, let's go into this week's cover athlete. Today's episode is Season 3, Episode 14, in chronological order, Episode 68, the Mike Hoffman edition. So, just a little backstory about Mike Hoffman. He was drafted 130th overall by the Ottawa Senators in 2009. He played seven seasons with the Senators, recording 107 goals. 123 assists for 230 points in 342 games, and he was later traded to the San Jose Sharks for Miguel Bacher, and later to the Florida Panthers for two second-round draft picks. So, Tim, I know that when talking about Mike Hoffman, of course, the obvious thing to come up would be how his departure ended. Excluding that, though, how would you look at Mike Hoffman's time as an Ottawa Senator? Mike Hoffman on the ice isn't. It's interesting because he's one of those guys that always kind of looked one dimensional. The guy was surprisingly responsible in his own end, or at least it looked that way because he played a lot of time with Mark Stone. That's true. I mean, that one thing that I always know about Mike Hoffman is that, and you're right, his play did seem very one dimensional, but for myself, he was just always a kind of guy that. I don't know, maybe it was just me. He always kind of seemed like he he left you wanting a little bit more. He always thought he could do a little bit more for the team. But, however, I have to say that probably my favorite Mike Hoffman moment, Game 6 versus the Penguins in 2017, when he hammered that rocket, hit the post, and inside the net. I thought you were going to say the aerial pass. The aerial pass was good, but you know what? I think on that one, I think of more of Eric Carlson more than Hoffman. And I think with the Hoffman in Game 6, I think more of him because nobody came anywhere near him in that. That's true. And that really, that's probably really what got the Senators going. And I think the one thing, it's like, it, I really get what you're saying about it really left you wanting more because you knew he could be a 30 or 40 goal scorer and he just never did in Ottawa. And I'm not sure. It was weird. Those Ottawa teams were all really low scoring teams. And then he goes off to Florida and almost pots 40 last year. Mm -hmm. And I think he's on pace to do the same this year for the Panthers as well. Something close. Yeah, he's had 18 goals in 45 games. So yeah, he might do it again too. So, Tim, let's talk about next week's cover athlete because next week's episode is Season 3, Episode 15, in chronological order, Episode 69. Now, of course, that we don't have an Ottawa Senator who wore number 69, so we've decided to go with the main character from the movie Goon, Doug the Thug Glatt. I'm not going to lie. Never seen the movie. It's actually pretty good, man. I mean, if you take it for what it is, I found it really entertaining. I mean... I, I think I like more the dramatic moments of the movie. I think theirs are kind of overrated, excuse me, a little bit underrated. And, of course, I think Sean William Scott did a pretty good job as Doug Glatt. But I think for myself, my favorite scene in the movie, and you might have to go check this up on YouTube, is the first scene where Doug joins the 
Halifax Highlanders, and the goalie just freaks out on the two Russian players. Hilarious. Yeah, I'll have to take your word for it. So, Tim, we got to talk about last week's episode because overall, I didn't feel it was our best episode, really. I We didn't get off to a good start, and while it came out all right, I don't know. It was just like, eh. It felt like a mess. Yeah, it just kind of... Maybe because we've been off for a couple of weeks. Maybe that was why we just kind of seemed a little rusty and we couldn't really get things going at the beginning. We turned it up, turned it around in the second half, but still, I don't know. I mean, it was just one of those things for me where I'm just like, eh, it could have been better. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just was, I don't know. I just kind of, I guess I was in a bit of a fog. So that'll teach me to do a podcast after flying. That's true. That's true. And I mean, you know, but that's we, my fault. It is. Well, you know, we ready. could have waited a day, but we're like, yeah, you know what? It, it'll be fine. We'll get it mm-hmm. out there and then we'll go on to the next week. Yeah, yeah. So now that we got that out of the week, Tim, I got to ask the all important question How has your week been? Not bad. Just getting back to the swing of things, really. Uh, and I guess that's to be said for pretty much it. I, I imagine a lot of people last week was getting back into the swing of it after New Year's. Yeah, so mostly it was doing whatever was around for people who were still who were even back from work yet. Some people took more time off New Year's and then uh, just playing dumb video games. Oh yeah, what have you been playing this week? I got started with Crusader Kings too. So that's an older grand strategy game where you play as a king, and it runs from 1066 to 1400 something. And yeah. You're basically just a feudal lord or king or whatever, and you leave your country, kill your brother, have sex with your sister. You know, normal king stuff. Is the game kind of like, and you correct me if I'm wrong, kind of like, oh, what the fuck was that game called? Um, Age of Civilization? It was a really old computer. No, it's not really like Age of Empires. Age of Empires, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, like it's kind of, but it's more... This one's definitely more about kind of managing your dynasty while you're still managing troops, managing a country sort of thing. That's so, like, there's thing. a lot of, like, a lot more, like, court intrigue, like, murder, like, uh, say, because it's European feudal lords, so they're all fucking related. So it's like, oh, your your brother's the king of this part of Spain. He dies, you inherit it, by the way. And that sort of stuff. Fun okay. game. Okay, what year did this game come out, Tim? I want to, actually, I could probably just check it. Uh, I want to say it's kind of recent, so... Well, it's... It's sequels coming out this year. So, Crusader Kings... Keep, the Crusader Kings 3 is coming out pretty quick. Yeah, so I don't actually know when it came out. Yeah, I'll figure it out, but it's... Uh, it's from this decade, I know that. Solid. So, I'll talk a little bit about my week. As you were saying, you know, just getting back into things... Same thing for myself. I'm just back to work now, and it was one of those things where you can tell that having time off is great, but getting back into it is such a chore because I was literally back three days at work, and I'm just like, fuck, when's my weekend? Like, I'm tired now. <laughs> this is what happens. Like, you got to understand, I've been off for, I was off for three weeks from work. Wasn't yep. working, wasn't doing anything. All I was doing was seeing friends and family. And really didn't have any downtime during the Christmas break. And then I come back to work and it's just like, they're, you know, they're easing it back into it now. And for myself, it's just like, oh, this is fine. You know, it's good to see everybody back 
at work and everything. But yeah, after three days, I was like, I'm dying. I'm tired. Let's go back. Let's do that napping thing. Yeah, naps were good. Actually, I had a good nap today. It was awesome. Nice. Yeah. Actually, you know what is nice, Tim? And, you know, over the last couple of weeks, or last several weeks, I should say, we've been doing a a segment called Discussion Point. Now, for those who don't know, Discussion Point is a segment where Tim and I will discuss something we either see on Twitter, whether it's a hot take, a rumor, or just something that's developing within the team. And this is something that, I'm not going to lie, this wasn't the first idea I had for Discussion Point. I actually had one. And you and I decided, and this is just a sneak peek at our upcoming off-season episodes, one Discussion Point that we found will become an off-season episode this summer. Fancy. Yeah. However, this this thing that for discussion point, I actually screenshotted this. It's from November 26th of last year from at this three time. And his tweet says, current or former Ottawa Senator, you most want to spill the beans and about what? Now, given that we just went through the tumultuous decade of the 2010s for the Ottawa Senators where... We went from being a bubble team in 2010 to where we are now in 2019. And I feel that this is a great opportunity to play kind of fantasy, not fantasy GM, but sort of if we had a chance to sit down with an ex-Ottawa Senator or current Ottawa Senator and ask them, a, tell us a story, tell us something that's going on in this team, this would be a great great opportunity and i'm gonna let you start off tim so so it's almost like we're playing fantasy reporter doing like a big tell all so like robin laner earlier lot something like the roderbert laner talking about his inner demons but about a whole team yeah or you can even get say a player spilling the beans on another player or a teammate or you know somebody within the locker room or even a mm. head coach so i'm gonna let you start off with this tim now tim given that the Ottawa Senators have had a number of players that I would say I think a lot of fans would love to hear stories about. So I gotta ask you, is there a player or even from either current or a former player that you would love to sit down and ask about either a teammate or an ex-coach? Remember back in 2018 when it seemed the sky was falling and in the middle of that Craig Anderson demanded a trade? Yep. I'd like to sit down and ask him, like, what was going on to just, like, what was the room like that prompted that and the fact that it seemed to be repaired enough that he retracted the trade demand? Ooh, that is good. I think that, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Mike Hoffman got traded out of town, given he is our cover athlete, and there was a lot of talks that it was the whole situation between him and Eric and their wives that really was the one of the big, big reasons for him wanting out. Mm-hmm. It's just so weird that it's like kind of a footnote, but it spoke so much about the team and to hear it from between him and Zach, him, Borbietsky and Smith were the most tenured senators at that point. Well, and Carlson were the most tenured senators. It would be interesting to see, hear just like how that whole locker room evolved and got to that point. Yeah, that would be a really, really good one. I'm not going to lie. For myself... Especially for Anderson, too, because unlike uh, Zach Smith, like Zach Smith, Borbietsky, and uh, Eric Carlson, who all came... And Hoffman, a lot of the guys that came up through the Ottawa system, Anderson's definitely more of an outsider, being a journeyman goaltender starting out in Colorado. Sorry, 
through Chicago, through Colorado, all the way through to Ottawa. So to get that more outsider perspective would be very interesting too. Absolutely. And actually, speaking of ex-Ottawa goaltenders, did you get a chance to see the tweet that Mike McKenna put up on his Twitter page about a day ago or so? No. So somebody actually asked him, I guess he was doing like an Ask Me Anything on his Twitter, and somebody asked him, how crazy were things during your time in Ottawa? And he just quote tweeted, quote tweeted saying, crazy is as crazy does. <laughs> I'm not sure is that, if that's talk talking about the whole thing or talking about Mike McKenna being a bit crazy himself. I'm not too sure. So for myself, I was thinking about this the last couple of days when we decided to do this for a discussion point. I have two of them. I'm going to say for two different reasons. One's more serious. And the other one is just because I want to hear crazy stories in the locker room. The crazy stories ones. Do you remember an ex enforcer on the Sens by the name of Brian McGratton? Whoa, that's a name. So Brian McGratton was on Spit and Chicklets, I think it was probably a year or two ago now, and he was telling stories about his friend, the late Ray Emery, and he told a really funny story about when they were in Bingo that for Halloween he went as Happy Gilmore and Chubbs, and so they got, and Ray Emery apparently almost got into a fight with this one guy. Brian McGratton broke it up, and they went toe-to-toe with each other. But I have to say, though, I would love to sit down with Brian and ask him about certain players on the 0506 and 0607 Senators because I think as social media has evolved and more and more stories are coming out about ex-Ottawa Senators, there's been a lot of stories I don't think we're ever told about players like Wade Redden, about Danny Heatley, about Ray Emery, about Mike Comrie when these guys were with the Senators and they were known as being partiers on the team. I would love to get sit down and talk to Brian and just get him to tell me stories about what those guys are like off the race because I imagine he must have some crazy fucking stories about those dudes during his time in Ottawa. Yeah, well, especially some of the stories that are publicly confirmed of guys like Mike Comrie. There's got to be some insane stuff you never hear. Oh, my God. And I know that the tweet that was put up here by this three times, somebody responded with, he would love to ask Mike Ho- Mike, Hoffman, Mike Fisher about peak Wade Redden. And I was like, ooh, that would be good. Peak Wade Redden. Now, the more serious one for me, Tim, and I know that you were just talking about Craig Anderson and what actually went on into him demanding a trade out of Ottawa a few years ago. And I think for myself, I have to go back probably five years previous to that, to 2013. I would love to sit down with Daniel Alfredson and ask him what exactly happened between him and Eugene that ended up with him becoming a Red Wing. Yeah, and I would hate for the like the immediate re-answer, reaction answer to be just all it was because that would be so damning about both the organization and Eugene Melnick. Mm-hmm, because I think it when we look back on that moment, Tim, the one thing that I always remember is that it was not Melnick who took the blame for that. It was Brian Murray. Murray took so much heat for that, for Alfredson walking out the door. Because Brian Murray offered him a contract. Alfredson says, I want a little bit more money, and he could have given that to him. But from what I understand, Melnick didn't want to give that to him. And that's why Alfredson walked out the door. Yeah, and I guess the hard thing is because I don't think we realized exactly how batshit insane Melnick really was 
because Brian Murray was so good at managing up. Yeah, and there's been, and of course, after Brian Murray's death in 2017, all these stories started coming out about Melnick and Murray's relationship. The most noted one being after the 2010 playoffs when the Penguins just knocked Ottawa out of the playoffs and Melnick charged down to the locker room to berate the players and Brian Murray barricaded himself against the door saying, no, you are not doing this to the players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I guess to be fair, we kind of, we should have had a hint too, especially when uh, Melnick wanted to fund an investigation into Matt Cook and just kind of unhinged shit like that was happening during the Brian Murray tenure. So maybe it was a bit unfair. It was a bit unfair, but I think because... I don't know if we as fans were not willing to accept how crazy Melnick was. It wasn't until Alfredson left. I think that's when really the tide began to turn negatively against Eugene with the fans because that's when the fans really began to realize, okay, something's not right here because if the, if everything was all right, why did Alfredson just walk out the door on us? Yeah. And, and this was different. This was different than when Carlson left because – the fans could justify to themselves Alfredson leaving because he was in his final year of his con- of his career anyways. You know, he was a re- you know older player, whatever, whereas Carlson at the time, when he left us, was on the top of his game. The yeah. fans could not justify that. Mm-hmm. And, like, Eric Carlson was one of the, probably the second most popular senator, the player the team had ever had, right? I would even argue with the current generation, that he has surpassed Alfredson as being the most popular senator of all time. Mm-hmm. Although, it really is hard to compare him and Alfredson. It, it is hard to compare them because they were so different, both mm-hmm. on and off the ice. But I think it depends on your age. I think it depends on which team you were you first started following, right? Because for you and I being fans when we first started becoming fans of the Sens... Alfredson was the captain, and this is when the, the cash line first started, and the Sens were at the peak of their powers. Whereas I think a new generation coming into the watching the Sens now, they saw Eric Carlson being the guy, the captain, top cheese in Ottawa, and then he's out the door. Mm-hmm. That's right, that's right. So I gotta say, Tim, that was a really great discussion point, and I hope for 2020 that we could try and make this somewhat of a regular segment because you know i think this actually brings out a lot of great talking points given that we just talked about some players that we wanted to get the the dirt on oh yeah for sure and we're coming up on well i guess some of the more obvious ones are like trade deadline stuff but uh yeah we're coming up on kind of the end run here so i think we'll have a lot lot to talk about going forward for sure man so with that being said tim it's time to segue into this little segment i like to call top of the hour So, you know, Tim, you know for top of the hour, I always hate starting off with a death. And this episode, unfortunately, we're starting off with a death. Pittsburgh Penguins co-owner Ron Burkle's son, Andrew Burkle, passed away at the age of 27 in his Beverly Hills home. Burkle became part owner of the Penguins in 1999 alongside former Penguin superstar Mario Lemieux. So we just want to give our condolences to Ron Burkle and the Burkle family for a lot of people who don't know who Ron Burkle is, I think for a casual hockey fan, when you talk about the owners of the National Hockey League, obviously the Tom Dundons come up, the Mary Lemieux's come up, guys like that, people who are in the spotlight, 
Ron Burkle is not that guy because honestly, I think him and Mario have a really good partnership in Pittsburgh because Ron Burkle is the money and everything, whereas Mario is the face of that ownership mm-hmm. group. And that makes things a lot easier. Absolutely, it does. And I know that, given as being Sens fans, and we've been talking about a, a potential ownership group buying the Sens, and I've always been saying you can have one group that could be the money behind the group and have a guy like Daniel Alfredson be the face of it. Because you know what? The fans, if Alfredson was the face of it, 100% the fans would come back in the good graces of the team because you see a guy who was there right from the beginning when we were not very good. He saw him with the team grow up. So there's an emotional attachment with Alfredson, and I think he would be great in that role as ownership. Mm-hmm. For sure. Let's move on to our next story. The National Predators have fired head coach Peter Laviolette after five and a half seasons. Laviolette joined the Predators in 2014 as head coach recording a 248, 143, and 60 regular season record while recording a 32 and 29 playoff record while recording while winning two division titles and leading Nashville to the Stanley Cup Finals in 2017. Former Devils head coach John Hines is hired as his replacement. So First of all, Peter, we just want to say, on behalf of all the Nashville Predators fans and the city of Nashville, thank you so much for everything you've done for the team. But I gotta say, Peter, you're fired. There's the voice. Yeah, I know. I've been been waiting a while to do this. So, yeah. actually, before we go any further, you know, it's funny, Tim, is that I was actually looking through the head coaches of the Nashville Predators after learning about Peter Laviolette's dismissal. Do you know how many head coaches, including John Hines, the Nashville Predators have had since 1998? I think it's like three. Three. Three cracking coaches. Think of every other expansion team. How many head coaches has Columbus been through? How many did Ottawa go through? How many did Florida, Tampa, Carolina? And then you got Nashville. Not even expansion teams. Think of just regular teams in that span. That's true. But look at Nashville. Nashville had three. To be fair. Barry Trotz is a really good coach. And so is Peter Laviolette. Yeah, that's true too. But like Barry, like Barry Trotz is a, look at what he's able to get out of a shoestring budget team. That's true. And he's doing wonders right now with the Islanders too. But the one thing about Peter Laviolette is that the next time that we talk about a head coach being fired, I will put any money Peter Laviolette's the guy that replaces him. Because honestly, Peter's track record, when you really look through his record, every team he's been to, with the exception of the Islanders at the very beginning, he's either won division titles or he's gone to the Stanley Cup Finals or won a cup with them. Like, he took the Flyers to the Cup Finals. He won a cup with Carolina. He's taken Nashville to the Finals. So honestly, he has been very successful with every team he's been to, and I feel that whatever team he ends up replacing, whoever head coach, I think will make a smart hire, in my opinion. Oh, for sure. Although, as much as he likes to say, the fact that I've been able to take that many different teams to that many Stanley Cup or division finals means I got fired a lot. That is true. That is true. And I will say one more thing. When I learned about Peter Laviolette is that, honestly, John Hines at the moment, maybe the somewhat best candidate, I, I guess, for the job. But I bet you anything, had Mike Babcock gotten fired in Toronto and all that stuff about him didn't come out, 
How much do you want to bet Nashville would have hired Mike Babcock as their head coach? You know, I have to wonder because David, like, uh, Poyle seems to be taking the team in a much more offensive direction, and uh, Babcock definitely wasn't doing that in Toronto, mm-hmm. despite the players that he was given. That's so, true. But, I mean, you also look at the players that he gave Peter Laviolette. I mean, both, what, Turris is a third liner, and I think Duchesne is kind of in the same boat as him right now? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, like, the scratching of Turris is the one thing that I still don't get. Because it wasn't like Turris was actually playing all that bad. He must have just done something to piss someone off. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't really know what to say about it. But I know that Nashville is really not doing great right now this season. And honestly, I just feel that firing Peter maybe isn't the greatest thing. But you know what? If firing him can give Nashville a shakeup and say, like, hey, listen, just because you guys have these long-term contracts does not mean you're safe. If Peter Laviolette, who arguably is one of our best head coaches we've ever had, got fired... What's that to say about you guys staying here? That's true. And the other thing is, is you do get that new coach bump too. And Hines did a, other than whatever the fuck happened in New Jersey this year, he did a respectable job. So it's not like Hines is a bad coach either. No, he's not. And maybe because, maybe with a new system in Nashville that he had in New Jersey, maybe John Hines could actually be a little bit more successful than he was with the Devils. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Let's move on to our next story. New York Rangers forward Elias Anderson stated in the Gothenburg Post that he requested a trade from the Rangers due to, in quotes, disturbing incidents. While he did not go into details regarding said incidents, he did state that people can say it's an idiotic decision for his hockey career. However, they don't know the whole truth as he does not know what to say or what to answer, but he will say when the time is right. So, and of course, when you read this story, the first thing that pops into his mind, going back a few months, is the Bill Peters situation, everything that went on with him. And then, of course... Babs and Mark Crawford and all these head coaches came out about the crap that they pulled the players. And honestly, you have to wonder if something similar happened to Elias Anderson with the Rangers that possibly made him request a trade from the Rangers. Yeah, and it's actually kind of surprising because Gordon's kind of, sorry, not Gordon. Who do they have behind the bench in New York now? Uh, that is a great question. I can quickly look this up. But like... As a GM, Gordon is a pretty—he's a pretty new guy, so I—I I don't think he'd be the type of Stanford if his coach was doing something like that. The current head coach of the Rangers is David Quinn. David Quinn, okay. And it's really interesting because I'm not sure if you noticed this. I think it was about a week ago now. Uh, Darren Dreger tweeted that seemingly out of nowhere that it wasn't a mental. Like, he talked with Lyons Anderson's camp, and they said it wasn't a mental illness thing. And out of context, it was just kind of an odd thing to tweet. Mm-hmm. And apparently, the Lindholt camp asked that that got out. But Dregs just wrote it in a really weird way. So it's like, I wouldn't be surprised if something's not go- something's going wrong in New York. Yeah, and it honestly makes you wonder, like I said, about with the Bill Peters situation, maybe this is another example of, say, a head coach or somebody within the team 
taking liberties with said players. Yeah. And that might honestly explain why the points weren't coming for Lindholm this year as well. Because he was, just nothing was happening for the poor guy. So Tim, we've got a couple of contract extensions to talk about. Not from players, but from the NHL and TSN. We're going to start off with TSN and RDS have reached an, reached an extension on their media rights deal with Hockey Canada. This deal will include the World Juniors, Women's World Championship, and the Under-18 World Championship, as well as a number of domestic events as well. So basically what I'm saying here, folks, is that in the 2021 World Juniors, TSN's camera will be helping Canada win gold for a second straight year. Nice. And I'm glad because I find that the panel that TSN has assembled is much better than Sportsnet's. It is. And I will actually say about the World Junior coverage this year is that, honestly, one of my favorite things from this tournament has to be Jeff O'Neill as an analyst. Because you could tell that Jeff really only cares about Team Canada and nobody else. And he, whenever you're talking about other teams, he, you can just tell he seems so kind of disinterested he's like yeah whatever and then canada goes yeah see i told you told you they're gonna do that and actually it's funny um fuck's his name uh james duffy said on the jane dad podcast about that he said you know when they were covering the world juniors in vancouver in 2019 you know when canada lost i think to finland jeff was just like you mean to tell me i spent 11 days of my life only for this to happen jesus christ but no, I think this is a great deal for TSN because, as you were saying, their media coverage for the World Juniors in these terms are better than Sportsnet's. And honestly, I do kind of miss TSN having the NHL rights because, unlike Sportsnet, TSN's analysts really were quite engaging to listen to. I mean, you can listen to the Bob McKenzie's, the James Duffy's, the Jamie McLennan's, and of course, with, like I said, with Jeff O'Neill doing the World Juniors, it just seems like they have a lot of people there Number one, who know what they're talking about, but they're also very engaging to listen to. Yeah, and I think, weird of a segue is this is going to seem, uh, I think that's one of the things that's really hurting uh, the CBC co- CBC Sportsnet coverage in the absence of Don Cherry, is they don't really have the cadre of people to really fill in that role outside of maybe Elliot Friedman. And this week it was, like, it was very bizarre because, like, in, in the Don Cherry slot they had like a hometown hockey segment on steroids about uh, Nate Thompson overcoming substance abuse. And it was a really cool story, but it was just a weird place to put it. Yeah, it is kind of a weird thing. You would think that would be, you would think they would do that for, say, a hometown hockey or even before they go to games, right? Before they say, and here's a story about Nate Thompson before we send it off to say, to whatever the Leafs game is they're going to be doing that night. Mm-hmm. But it's like, and I think part of that is just they don't have the, I don't think they have the analytical power that TSN does anymore. And not to say that Grapes was good in his later years, but even if the guy was spewing stuff, it was, Grapes had an odd charisma about him. He did. He did have that charisma about him. But he also had a, uh, he was very comforting to listen to. He just seemed like your uncle talking about hockey. Whether or not you agreed with his opinions or what he said, there was always something kind of comforting about Don Cherry on TV. 
And I think because so a couple of generations have grown up watching him, right? And I mean, I'm the same way. I grew up watching him on Coach's Corner. I had the Rock'em Sock'em videos every year. And so, yeah, he just seems like an, like an uncle that you would talk about sports with. Yeah, I'm glad you chose uncle. Because then you try, you tune out when the weird race <laughs> diatrates begin. That is true. That is true. The NHL has signed a multi-year contract extension with Molson Coors, which will see... Molson Canadian remain the official beer of the NHL in Canada. Molson joins Budweiser as the official beer of hockey after the NHL agreed to terms with Anheuser Brush Labatt last month. So what? So basically, folks, what the story is entailing is that when you go to set a hockey game, if you want to drink a nine dollar watered down Molson Canadian, you can. Thanks. I hate it. You know what I. I really don't have an opinion of Molson Canadian to be honest. I'll drink it if it's there, but I'm not going to go out of my way to buy it. Yeah, and that means I'm not going to pay my dollars for it. No, and actually, the last time I was at a Canucks... No, actually, the second time, second or last time I was at the Canucks game is that I actually got a couple of tall craft beers, and they were almost like 20 bucks a piece. Jesus. But they were like local craft IPAs. They were like 16 bucks, and they were tall, too. They were like... Kind, oh, okay. Kind of so like a medium to large coffee. That. Yeah, it was pretty good. Okay, because I, you're starting to make those stamp your butts we bought sound like a all right idea. Oh, yes. I totally forgot about those beers. You know, the funny <laughs> thing is, is that those actually, they were all right for what it was. It was either that or, what the hell was it? Was it that or Bud Light? And I'm just like, no, if I want to drink Bud Light, I'll go get a bottle of water. I'll take a Budweiser. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and I think that was back when we still thought we owed Chelsea drinks. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We almost owed her beers to, or drinks too, Tim. Yeah. Well, it was funny because I think we thought we did when we did that. Uh, we did our prices right for the free agency that year. I know. And wasn't it Chelsea who pointed out that she didn't win at all? <laughs> Chelsea. I'm surprised she just didn't shut up and take it. <laughs> That's true, and none of us would have said anything. That's the funny thing. Yeah. Well, it makes a funnier story, honestly. Oh, this is a complete tangent. But we never actually settled uh, the free agent prices right from last season, from this season. Oh, my God, we never didn't do that at all. Yeah, because we forgot when Gardner signed for, like, nut for Peanuts. So I'm pretty sure I lost. You know what? For next week's episode, I am going to reveal who actually won that. I'll go back and listen to the episode, and we'll get back to it for next week's yeah, episode. because I'm pretty sure I lost that now. Sure. Now that I fucking remember. So, Tim, we've got a couple of milestones to talk about. Toronto Maple Leafs forward Austin Matthews became the first player in Leafs history to record 30 goals or more in each of his first four seasons. Only 15 NHL players in NHL history have scored 30 or more each of their first full seasons, with Alex Ovechkin being the only active player in that group. So, you know, Tim, even though we are Ottawa Senators fans, and we usually chuck shit at Austin Matthews, the one thing I can't do, I can't deny the guy's talent. And I think that fucking kills me to say that, because he does play for the Leafs, and in the first game, he did score four goals, even though we ended up winning 5-4. But still, that's not the point. The point is, is that, honestly, when you see these kinds of milestones, you're just like, God damn it, like, I hate the fucking guy, but you got to 
somewhat appreciate his talent as a hockey fan. That's true. And you know what? I was actually surprised that McDavid didn't do it. And that's just because his first season wasn't a full season. That's true, because he uh, got badly injured in his rookie year. Yeah, and he played half a season and scored 48 points. Like, otherwise, I'm sure, yeah, McDavid would have done it too. But, yeah, it's a weird quirk of fate that he didn't. That is true, man. That is true. National Predators goaltender Pekarene became the 12th goalie in NHL history and first since Mike Smith in October 2013 to score a goal when he scored on an empty netter in their game versus Chicago. Rene now has one goal, 13 assists in 650 career NHL games. That's cool. That's pretty cool. And you know the funny thing is, is I, I always love to see those kind of goalie goals because do you ever realize... Every goal that they ever score, it's always from right behind the net, and they just flip it right at. You know, they don't take it right from the crease and just shoot it. I think I've maybe seen that one time ever happen. Well, it's really funny because you could you can blame Marty Turco for that, even though the, the guy never actually scored a goal. No. Honestly, I think for the trapezoid, you got to blame Verdeur for that more than Turco. Turco would skate right to the blue line. Because Verdeur is the better goalie, but Marty Turco is the better stick handler. Yeah. I mean, but then again, neither of them were like Dominic Hasek, where he would just charge into the net and slide towards it. Well, and by puck, you mean player. No, I mean both. <laughs> That's got to be one of my favorite hockey highlights of all time. And we have the recipient of that hit on our team right now. Oh, that is true. That is true. But yeah, it's funny. Like, Hasek always even did that during his years in Buffalo. Like, he would just charge into the net and slide, saying like, oh, you want to score? Go ahead. Try and go around me. And you know what? You can't. Never worked. Yeah. Although, <laughs> I think Hasek was more known for uh, popping the net than anything else. Uh, well, uh, other than that, also being a fantastic goalie, of course. Yeah, and apparently being a fucking dick, too. Well, I mean, he did get injured at the Olympics. That's true, and he also screwed the Sabres in 97, but... Yeah, but even listening to Matthew Barnaby on Spit and Check, let's talk about him. And he says, you know what? You know, he says, you know, I may be a little biased because I think he's a fucking asshole, but I think he's just one of the greatest goaltenders that ever lived. And I have to agree with that. You hear that a lot from, from former goaltenders. Like, uh, Jamie McClendon's like, yeah. Like, he said it on broadcast a few times that Hashik's one of, if not the best. Yeah, he said it during a Sens Red Wings game earlier this year, too. Yes. How did we not bring that up during that game, though? That's the one thing I need to say. We're not good at this? You would think, Tim, and guys, we've only been doing this for three seasons. Fuck, man. Yeah. Let's move on to the next story. Calgary Flames have signed defenseman Rasmus Anderson to a six-year, $27.3 million contract extension with an AAB 4.55. Anderson, who was set to be an RFA July 1st, has recorded three goals, 9-12 points, and 45 games for Calgary this season. So when this signing first happened, I'm not going to lie to him, two thoughts came into my mind. Number one, I have never heard of Rasmus Anderson, maybe because I don't follow the Calgary Flames very closely, but second of all, I think going forward, this could be a very, very good signing for the Flames if he develops into their number one right-shot defenseman in the next couple of years. Even if he's just a very competent number two, this is a sneaky good signing. Mm, and the Flames got a bit, some big decisions to make this offseason because I think both TJ Brody and 
Travis Hamanek are going to be UFAs this summer. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see because Hamanek really took a du- his production went quite down when he joined the Flames, but it looks like things are getting a bit better this year. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what they actually do with Hamanek and with Brody. I'm actually not sure what they're doing with Brody. I don't know. Actually, I mean, possibly it could be a situation very very different than in Ottawa about 15 years ago between Chara and Redden where you kind of have to pick one or the other because I'm not sure I in my estimation I would think you would probably keep offensively you would probably keep Brody but I think more for a defensive you would keep Hamannick right because Hamannick while you said his offensive production has dipped while joining the Flames last season even though he didn't have really good offensive numbers his plus minus I think he was like a plus 19 or something plus 20 last year yeah what's weird though is for the last two years when when brody's been on the ice it's just been an offensive black hole for the flames so like i wonder and he's coming into his age 30 well both of them are coming into their age 30 season too so it might be time for tj brody to take a bigger step back because the offense is starting to disappear but no, overall, I think this is a pretty solid signing for the Flames, especially oh, yeah. because, you know, and I was looking at his numbers, and I was thinking, oh, okay, I mean, you're giving that for only a guy who's played, what, one full season for the Flames, but you know what? I mean, hell, if he can keep contributing offensively for the Flames on the right side, then, hell, this is going to be a really good signing for the Flames. One thing I do wonder about the Flames, though, is how is Mark Giordano still alive? I don't know. Like, just killing it in the O-zone and the D-zone at age 36. Like, sure, the primary points per hour are down, but they're still not bad. And he's on the right side of the shot clock. The net's not getting caved in when he's on the ice, and he's 36. Do you think he's going to Chelios? Maybe. Maybe he... Well, he's definitely on the right side of 30 for sure, but... Yeah, he could be, but that all depends on if he can keep his conditioning up and whether or not he wants to keep playing into his 40s. There's something fun about the guys just really going for it after thir- after 40, you know? That is true, that is true. And actually another guy who is almost reaching 40 just signed a contract. Carolina Hurricanes have signed Justin Williams to a one-year $700,000 contract with an additional $1.3 million in performance bonuses. Williams recorded 23 goals, 30 assists for 53 points in 82 games for Carolina last season. Justin Williams is one of these guys, and I think of him kind of like a Ray Whitney. Just a guy who was pretty good in his 20s, got better in his 30s, and now that he's almost reaching 40, he might be still one of the top of his game right now. And that's hard to say, right? Because the guy... It means, what, 37, and the guy had 53 points last year? Like, how many players at that age still contribute that kind of numbers? How many players ever contribute to those sort of numbers? That's true, but but still, Justin Williams is one of those guys, and to me, he is kind of like a Ray Whitney type of guy that he's very solid, always been really good during his career, and I think he's a career that... I don't know if a lot of NHL fans have really appreciated Justin Williams for just the body of work and the production he's put in during his career. Because if you go back, even back in the day when he played for Philadelphia, he still put up pretty decent numbers for the Flyers. 
Well, we're also talking about a guy that not only is putting, he puts up great numbers, his fancy stats are impeccable, but he's also, he has the awards. He's a three-time cup winner. He's won the Smythe. Dude's had a Hall of Fame career, like straight up. Yeah, I don't think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, but he's definitely a Hall of Famer, in my personal opinion. Yeah, I think the only thing he's missing is, has he played international or... Not that I know of. I don't think he's played internationally. I could be wrong on that. But as you're saying, right, you know, the guy's three cops. He won a Conn Smythe trophy. And they and the Hurricanes came within, like, what, one, two wins last season going back to the finals for the third yeah. time in their history? Yeah, like, it's, it's insanity. So, Tim, we've got one suspension we need to talk about. Or, sorry, not suspension. we got a fine to talk about. Montreal Canadiens forward Nick Cousins was fined $2,688 and, wait for it, Tim, $0.17, cents, the maximum allowable under the CBA for boarding Detroit Red Wings defenseman Mike Green. Cousins is not a repeat offender. Honestly, I didn't even see the ad. I have no comment to make, but I don't know. I mean, this is, again, like I've, I always go back and say that this is the kind of play that needs to come out of the league but because i didn't see the hit i can't really give an honest opinion on it if i had seen the hit i could be like okay you know he just sort of nudged him green lost his edge he went into the boards but since i didn't see it i don't know i've got no comment to make yeah that's that's fair honestly and i didn't watch it either but honestly just some consistency would be nice Oh, believe me, Tim, if we're going to be talking about consistency, wait till next week's episode we're talking about Zach Cassian. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So we're going to close out top of the hour by talking about the Ottawa Senators because Ottawa Senators have hired Jim Little as the team's new CEO. Little, who joins the team from his former position as Executive Vice President of Shaw Communications, also held executive roles at the Royal Bank of Canada, Bell Canada, and Bombardier Aerospace. Now, I have to admit, Tim, do you know anything about Jim Little? I know for myself, when I heard he got hired, my first reaction was, who? Well, he's not a hockey guy. And honestly, for depending what type of marketing you're doing in the corporate world, if, if your name's not a household name, that might be a good thing. Because that means you haven't, been, you haven't had to put out fires. And from the sounds of things... Uh, and there was a, I think there was a really good interview in the Athletic with uh, someone who had worked with a little at Shaw that he is very good at what he does. So it's good to see that the Senators have found that person to head the more business side of it. That is true. Now, from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but somebody on Twitter was saying that he was a part of Shaw Communications when they went through their rebrand in 2012, if I'm not mistaken, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's all I know about it. I mean, like I said, I don't know anything about Jim Little. I don't know about anything that he did within Shaw or Bell Canada or the Royal Bank. So, you know, honestly, I'm going to keep my opinion to myself because I really don't know what to make of the hiring myself. And I agree with a lot of people. It was just sort of a... Who, who or what? Who's Jim Little and why are we hiring him to be the CEO of this team? Yeah, pretty much. Honestly, it almost kind of made me forget the fact that we still don't have a president of hockey operations. But I guess they shut that down till the summertime. 
Again. Yep. A little consistent. <laughs> be nice. But maybe maybe this is a sign of more normal stuff coming to the senders. And I, know, maybe. I think that's a fairly empty C suite if I if I remember correctly, because uh, there's Chief of Marketing, I'm not sure if they replaced the Chief of Marketing Operations either after Amy left. I don't think so. I haven't heard anything about it. Mm -hmm. So, Tim, that wraps up Top of the Hour for this week, which can mean only one thing. It's time to head on to the games. Now, we got three games to talk about this evening. We've got the Sensors of the Capitals, Sensors of the Red Wings, and the Canadiens versus the Senators. But before we do that, let's hit the music. Time to play the game! Okay, Tim, let's start talking about the Sens versus the Capitals. This is a 6-1 Capitals victory. Sens goes was guarded by Artem Anisiov. Capitals goes was guarded by TJ Oshi with 2, Alex Ovechkin with 2, Rado Gouda, and Lars Eller. Shots were 41-27 for Washington. Washington outplayed Ottawa throughout the game. The Capitals came out of the gate overpowering Ottawa with their offensive attack, which the Sens were able to hold off in the first period. However, as the floodgates opened in the second and third, the Capitals ended up scoring three goals in each period to secure the W. Now, honestly, this is just one of these games for me, Tim, that I watched it, and it's not really that great of a game. It was a game that happened. But it's also a game for me that I watched it. I'm thinking, uh, you know, okay, whatever. So I do have a couple of notes to make of it. First of all, Craig Anderson, 25 saves, a .833 save percentage. Well, you know me. I always play the devil's advocate when it comes to goaltending. And honestly, I didn't feel he played as badly as the score may suggest, as a couple of the goals were well-placed. But the first Oshi goal, that, yeah, that was totally on Anderson. He got pulled out of position on that one. Yeah, and kind of funny and you kind of see the floodgates start to open as when you look kind of the NHL has that cool game track like that game intensity tracker and you can kind of see the bottom kind of falls out a bit for the sense after that Oshi goal yeah it was just one of those things where honestly I watched it and I'm just like because honestly Ottawa didn't play a bad first period but I think into the second and third period that's when you saw the floodgates really open offensively for Washington and that's when you saw Oshi score two, Ovi score two, and you see all these goals happening. And the one goal that Ovechkin didn't get, which actually he later got in a second one, was when Dylan DeMello swiped the puck off the red line. And it was a couple of inches away from counting, too. Yeah, Jesus Christ. And as much as we like to you like to defend the goaltender, if, you're ha if you have a, a sub-900 night, you're not having a good night most of the time. And and Craig Anderson was closer to 0.8 than he was to 0.9. True. But you know what? Like I said, I, I honestly... Because when you watch the game and you watch some of the saves he made, he didn't honestly look too bad. And I understand a lot of people on Twitter are very critical of Anderson because you see the numbers he's putting, putting up. And I do kind of agree with that because you do watch him on some of the goals and you're thinking... Okay, he either should have had that or age is really caught up or something's happening. But also, when you look at the play of guys like Anders Nelson, especially Marcus Hogberg, who's really emerged over the last couple of months, I feel that has really put in the fire to Craig Anderson. And honestly, the writing's on the wall for him right now, as Mr. Ian Mendez wrote on Twitter. Yeah, and I think there's really proof in the pudding, too, because uh, Marcus Hogberg got both of the starts next game. 
or both of the next two starts in a back-to-back. And the fact that he was able to handle that pretty good suggests that Ogberg has what it takes to be a starting goalie. That like, is... it's there, it just has to be put together. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I know, I was talking, I can't remember who it was, I was talking to somebody on Twitter, and he said the exact same thing. He said that Hogberg is looking really, really good, but he hasn't had a really bad game yet. He's had moments where you watch him and you're like, okay, he should have had that. But you know what? Uh, overall, I feel that I do agree. I think he has played better than Anderson statistically-wise, but it'll be tough. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do with Anderson after this season either they're going to try and move him and keep salary till the end of the year or dump like they're obviously if they don't we'll dump him in july but i don't know that's for another episode actually one couple of players i do want to talk about outside of dylan zamello and craig anderson thomas shabbat he had four shots in this game again this is another game for me where he looks calm cool and collected even against the high-flying washington capitals offense and honestly it didn't even look like it phased him which is kind of weird, right? Because other defensemen would be like, oh, shit, like the other team's coming at me. And he's just like, okay, yeah, no worries. Like, come at me. It's all good. And what's weird is that Shabbat didn't actually look particularly bad from from a shot percentage. Like, sure, he was sub-50, but it wasn't an absolute pummeling. And the poor guy was up around 30 minutes again. Yeah, and actually watching these games, actually watching a couple of games this week that – I've noticed the one player he kind of starting to remind me a little bit of, the way he skates and the way he handles the puck is Scott Niedemeyer. When you watch him back with the Devils and even with the Ducks, he played very similar to Shabbat is. And while Niedemeyer, of course, you know, is Scott Niedemeyer who fucking won everything, but Niedemeyer is one of those guys that he was such a smooth skater, and I would never say that Shabbat, Shabbat is a really great skater, but it looks effortless for him when he skates too. Doesn't even look like he's trying to bend his knees. He just looks like he's sort of gliding around everybody. Yeah, and I think that's that's why his speed is so deceptive. Yeah, and because I think that's just so effortless. Yeah, and that's what that was the difference between him and Eric Carlson. When Carlson played for the centers, he didn't look that way. He looked that but you could tell Carlson was really gunning for it. You can tell he was really motor. You can always see that. Shabbat, you don't see that. I think it like you said, his speed is more deceptive because he looks like he just glides around you. And he looks so smooth and effortless when he does it. Yeah. It's funny, actually, you're talking about Hogberg. And Hogberg played really well, pretty well in relief. He did. Make sure I... he gave up another goal to Ovechkin. But one goal and 11 shots, that's pretty darn good for a guy coming in on a game that's over. Yeah, I was honestly pretty happy for him for his relief performance. Another guy I was really happy with, and I know that this is somebody that... You've, you, I think you commented, you said that whenever he's scoring, you're happy, is Artem Anisioff, one goal and four shots. I have to say, this is probably the only real positive I could say about this game offensively because that Anisioff shot, he just wires at top shelf. Like, he did, he kind of looks like a little, has a little Ovechkin thing to him where he just sort of toe drags and just shoots it right top shelf over the goalie. Actually, looking for... Looking at the stat chart here, unfortunately, I didn't really get a chance to look at the full game, watch the game. Drake Batherson seems to be on the right side of it and had a pretty decent amount of shots himself. How did he look? Drake Batherson, I didn't honestly think looked too bad in this game. And this is one of the things that over the last couple of games that I've actually really noticed, even though I've never haven't mentioned it, is that as you and you are correct, he does look like he's on the right side of the puck. The one thing that I've noticed 
is that when he he has the puck, he reminds me a little Jason Spezza a bit, is that when he has the puck, he's always looking to pass it off. He's not looking to shoot it. And especially when Batherson was replacing Duclair on the power play, that was the one comment I had about him, is that I wish Drake Batherson would take the shot because that's what he needed on the power play. And I don't think Ottawa needs three or four guys passing it around. They need a guy like Anthony Duclair who can take a shot off. Batherson, I honestly thought, looked really good. And he looked like a, such a different player since he's been called up. And I know in the third game that we're going to be talking about here this evening, we'll talk a little bit more about him. But no, I absolutely agree. He was definitely on the right side of the shots. And he looked pretty good overall. Although, one thing to say about Batherson is even in NBA, he's a playmaking winger. 13 goals, 28 assists in 33 games. Which is fucking nuts, by the way. It is, but you know what? Is that when you're... I understand that he's a playmaker, but when you're put into situations where you need to shoot, I feel that you have to be that kind of person to take shots. Because you know what? If that's what your team is asking you to do, I feel that that's what you should be doing, even though his first reaction is always pass the puck. And honestly... Batherson does have a nice shot, so I think it'll come. The fact that he's on the right side of the ice and he's able to make some plays, and he still got two shots off in a game where Ottawa kind of got killed on the shot clock, that's definitely something to be very happy about. Something that kind of gets talked about this week is Anthony declares he was kind of invisible. Yeah, and that was the one thing I also noticed in this game is that Duke didn't have the best game. He, I think he played a little bit better against the Red Wings. Uh, he, actually, I thought he played pretty decent against uh, the Habs. But yeah, this game and the Red Wings game kind of looked invisible. He looked a little more visible versus Detroit. But honestly, yeah, I would agree with that assessment, Tim, that he did look quite visible in this game. Yeah. It's funny because I think that this is just one of those games where it's a young team. Blowouts happen. It does. So the final comment I have to make about this game before we head on to the second game of the evening, and of course, with these episodes, I always talk about the DJs in whatever arena, whether they're playing a song or a music cue, and a couple of things I noticed in this game. First of all, the Caps DJ. Now, because I'm watching this on Game Center hours after the game happens, I always click R1 on my PS4 controller right to start a first period, so they go right to the opening face-off, and they open up the with Disturbed, now, I don't know what the song was, but I can definitely tell it was Disturbed. Later in the second period, he played Prince's 1999 and also played Jane's Addiction Superhero, which was also the theme for the HBO show, Entourage. Huh. Now, honestly, I'm thinking about getting Crave just because so, I want to rewatch Entourage again. But I, I think I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and the first couple of seasons were pretty good, but I think seasons four, five, six were not that great, to be honest with you. They were, they were all right. I never watched it. Was it any good? I, I don't know if I, I... I definitely appreciate it. I don't think you would because it has more of that bro sort of thing to it. Mm. Which I think... Cause, and you know, you've talked about it with sh shit like spit and chicklets and stuff like that's why you don't listen to it. But it kind of has that kind of bro mentality where... Actually, um, Honest Trailers, they put it perfectly. They said it's basically Sex in the City for guys. <laughs> and I laughed. I'm like, yeah, that's. I never saw Sex and the City, but that's that's pretty funny. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, so probably not worth me putting some time into it. No, I mean for myself, it was pretty good. But yeah, I liked it. 
Okay, Tim, so let's go on and talk about the second game of the evening because, Tim, we've got ourselves a dandy on our hands. The two bottom dwellers of the Eastern Conference and the Atlantic Division meet at the Little Caesars Arena. If this game was any more low quality, it would be the pizza itself. Sens versus Red Wings. Wow. This is a 3-2 Red Wings shootout victory. Sens goes scored by the real American Brady Dechuk and the other American Colin White. Red Wings goals are scored by Tyler Pertuzzi and Dylan Larkin. Shots for 31-28 for Ottawa. A somewhat even game overall. Ottawa started the game outplaying Detroit. However, Detroit broke through, breaking the scoreless tie in the first. Both teams got bounces going for them in the second, tying it up two, which was held until a shootout was needed, which Detroit won. So we were talking about this guy in the last game, Tim. Marcus Hogberg, 26 saves, a .928 save percentage. I actually thought he played a really strong game. In this one. Yeah, and you know what? Only giving up two goals, we one of them on what looks like a two on what looks like on the tail end of a man advantage. Not a bad outing, and at point nine two you can't ask for more out of your goalie. That's true, and honestly, out of the three games, this one this is the game that honestly I could say that honestly it's it's a game that happened. It was it was so hard for me to actually come up with notes for this game because I'm honestly watching like Outside of Hogberg, like, nobody is really standing out in this game. Everybody just kind of looks the same. Ottawa just really can't get much going. Detroit, uh, obviously. Jonathan Bernier played a good game at a .935. Yeah, he's still in the league. I know, he's still a thing. Which, actually, have you noticed, over the last several times that we have played Detroit, Jonathan Bernier has been the starting goaltender for the Detroit Red Wings in those games. Is he their starting goaltender? Oh, yeah, he's played 28 games. I think he is their starter. Damn. Yeah, him and Howard are splitting. Yeah, Bernier has 28 starts. Howard has 18. Man, that is insane. But, yeah. You know what's even scarier, dude? What? Bernier's 31. God, remember when everybody in Toronto thought he was going to be the future of their goaltending? Remember when that was six years ago? Remember remember when they did that? No, I guess you never saw it. There was a reality show where they did about hockey wives, and Jonathan Bernier's wife was there, and Bernie was on this show, and he looks like he was just dead inside. <laughs> but no, honestly, this is a game that for myself, watching it, for the Senators, I just couldn't really come up with any notes for this game. I was just watching, like, I, I don't really know what to make of this game. Like, I understand that we're both tanking, but... Man, I, I don't know. Like, this is just isn't that great. But Yo, but Tank Gang wins. Tank Gang rise up. Yeah. Or as your name, Tree would say, all rise for Tank Bowl. Tank Bowl. I know. Uh, but yeah, this game's boring and nobody should watch it. Want to go into the next one? Um. Uh, first of all, I just want a couple of notes I have on the game. Brady to Chuck, one goal and four shots. Definitely was mucking it up with the Red Wings again. Colin White, one goal, one assist on four shots. Honestly, I didn't really notice him out there outside of the goal. But the one comment I do want to make, again, we're going to go back to the DJ. The day that they played this game, news broke that Neil Pert from Rush had passed away. And after the first whistle, they played Rush over the PA system. That's nice. That is actually really nice. That is super nice. But you know what's also nice, Tim? 
It's time to head on to the third game of the evening. Habs versus Senators. This is a 2-1 Habs victory. Canadians goals are scored by Nick Suzuki and Ilya Kovachuk in overtime. Senators goals are scored by Drake the Snake Batherson. Shots were 42-25 for Ottawa. Ottawa outplayed Montreal for the majority of this game. Both teams came out playing with energy and creating scoring chances in the first period. However, Ottawa took over in the second and completely dominated in the third, pushing their shot total to over 40. Montreal put it in neutral, heavily relying on Carey Price before Kolachuk got his first and a half in OT to secure them the W. So you know that we always start off with the goaltenders. I'm actually going to start off with Carey Price. 41 saves, .976 save percentage. He's the only reason Montreal won this game, by the way. It's because of him. Yeah. Dude was under assault. By the Ottawa Senators. Honestly, the last time I've ever seen the Montreal Canadiens leave Carey Price out to dry this badly versus Ottawa was the outdoor game. Either that or the 2015 playoffs when Carey Price got pulled after five goals. True, but I mean, the, the outdoor game was definitely, a, for myself, was the last time I've, I've seen them just leave them out to dry that bad. Because Ottawa just heavily assaulted Montreal in that game. But this is a game that, honestly, outside of Carey Price, Ottawa should have won this game. And this was a much better game than I think, given that we just watched the Red Wings game a couple of nights prior, or I did in this case. Coming into this game, this was a game that I'm thinking, okay, you know... I don't know if it's just me, but I always kind of underestimate the Habs-Sens games because I always kind of think that, okay, there's not going to be much to talk about. And these games always seem to be very entertaining for me. Yeah, that first period was chippy. Oh, was it ever. It was a good first period, too. It was, you know, throwing the body around and Brady Chuck was mucking it up. And I just love that guy. The one thing I do have to say about that is... Uh... How is it that the Ottawa Senators find obscure rules every week with Drake Batherson getting an interference call, leaving the penalty box because he touched the puck before he stepped fully on the ice? Is that why they called him the penalty? I honestly yeah. thought because he got the call was that when he fully got on the ice, he jumped back into the play, which I always thought was not allowed. I think, I'm not quite sure exactly how the rule goes because I know I've seen examples like uh, the one that I always go back to is uh, the 2007 playoffs against Buffalo where Gomez is in the box, he jumps out jury springs him and scores a breakaway I honestly thought you were going to talk about 2012 versus the Rangers when Matt Karkner came out of the penalty box to get the pocket feed Milan and McCulloch cross ice. Oh that was sick too but uh, yeah, Bastion just wasn't fully out of the box Okay, because I saw some people on Twitter talking about that, and I couldn't really figure it out. I was like, why are they complaining? And then I watched the game, and honestly, I didn't really pick up on that. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's a stupid penalty to take. I don't know what the hell he's doing. Because, But then I guess that would make sense. If he hasn't fully got back on the ice and he touches the puck, then, yeah, I could kind of see that, sort of. I've never heard the rule myself. And actually, let's talk about the, the Batherson goal, because he had one goal and one a shot, and Honestly, he didn't play bad in this game, but this is a game where he was really lucky to get that bounce because really nothing was getting price, getting past Carey Price in this one. Yeah, and it's weird because like Batherson's body of work for the game, again, was really good. 
Yeah, like he, he kind of like Tyler Ennis in a way. Like he's always in the right position. He's always on the right side of the puck, but he just can't seem to score. Whereas Ennis, I feel that has a little bit more of a scoring touch to put the puck in, and he's not fully a playmaker, but he definitely can put the puck in the net. And I feel that's what, like I was saying about the game versus the Capitals, this is something that Batherton needs to kind of learn in the NHL. He needs to learn how to shoot. Because, honestly, he's going to be put in those situations where he has to be that guy to get the mm. shot off. But at the same time, I think it'll come. I think so. Because, like, he's in the right place, he's shooting, and he's just starting to get rewarded. One player that I felt kind of bad for is Thomas Shabbat. It was over 32 minutes, and... Honestly, wasn't great. Like, I think he was the only, one of the few sense players to actually get outshot by Montreal. I'm not sure how much of that is being handcuffed to Ron Hainsey. I don't know. I, it would be interesting because, honestly, when I was watching the game, and that's an interesting point because I didn't feel Shabbat played that overly terrible, to be perfectly honest. But he definitely got, he, he definitely was handcuffed to Hainsey. But I feel for Ron Hainsey... As soon as he got the puck, he just chipped it out. He didn't even bother trying to skate with it. One guy I did notice, he was trying, definitely trying to make some plays, is the newly acquired Mike Riley with five shots. And honestly, I know that you've been not really fully on board with Mike Riley, but honestly, I felt over the last couple of games, especially in this one, I think he's actually been playing pretty decently for Ottawa. Honestly, yeah. He's been skating well, and he's on the right side of the puck, so I'm not sure how much of that is just new team energy. But if he can keep it up, I have no problem with it. Yeah, because he's jumping into the play. And that's the one thing I noticed is that, especially in this game, he got in the blue line. He made a move to go around the Habs. And you can kind of see him looking for an opening, trying to see, okay, is there a guy open? Do I shoot? What am I going to do now? Because now he's got the puck, right? And then he just goes around the net and nothing happens. And it's like, yeah, it's like the skating is definitely there. Like, holy shit. Yeah, this is just a, it's a weird game. There was, and actually there was a number of Ottawa players of note I want to mention. Obviously, Shabbat had three shots, and now we've already commented on him. Dylan DeMillo, he's back in the lineup. Four shots. I didn't feel he played all that terribly, to be perfectly honest with you. Anthony DeClaire, you definitely noticed him more in this game than you noticed him either in the Caps or the Red Wings game. Brady, obviously, being Brady with six shots. And the one guy sneakily had a decent game, from what I saw, was Chris Tenere. What did he do to get an unsportsmanlike? I don't know. I, I don't know what he did, to be honest with you. Because, honestly, Tierney was having a pretty solid game. Like, he was jumping in the play. He was making right decisions. And, yeah, I'm not sure what he did to get that unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. Yeah, weird stuff. Yeah. He was a bit of a quieter night for Colin White, but he was on the right side of the puck, so gotta give, gotta give props where props is due. That is true. That is true. So the one final comment I got to make, of course, is about Ilya Kovalchuk on the OT winner. The one thing that I noticed on that play, man, he was fucking teasing Hogberg with that goal. He kind of stops, and he's like, oh, you want to see the puck? Yeah, it's in. Yeah, what are you going to do now? He's just like, because you could see Hogberg standing there because Batherson was backing up trying to stop him, and Kovalchuk just stops. And he does like a little thing with the puck on the ice. And you could see Hogberg going, ah, oh, fuck. Where's it going? Where's it going? And it goes in. How is a guy with that much skill not lighting it up still? Well, we've talked about this in the past. Yeah. Because he was on a wrong 
team in LA, and I feel that he is going to be he. From what I've seen, he's done way better in Montreal. And one comment I want to know, and maybe we can comment on top of the air for next week's episode, is that he is one more goal away from passing, I believe, Pavel Burry on the all-time Russian goal-scoring list. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm just going to quickly look this up just to to fully let you know about this because. Honestly, this is impressive. Okay, all-time Russian goal scorers. Alexander Ovechkin, 684. Sergei Fedorov, 483. Alexander McGillney, 473. Pavel Burry, 437. And Ilya Kovachak, 437. They're both tied at number four. So Kovachak just needs one more goal to pass Pavel. Crazy. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is, holy fuck, like player deployment, this game, it's like six and... It's like a six in one hand, a half dozen in the other of good and bad. Because on the forwards, it looked fine enough, other than Pajot playing 26 minutes, with no one under 10. But on defense, Engalan played seven, Golubov played 10. Everyone else was over 20. Yeah. That defense better get healthy in a hurry, or they're going to be a, pot, a smoldering pile on the ground. Well, as you and I were talking about earlier today, Andreas Eglin on waivers, because apparently Nikita Zaitsev's coming back. And I do love the fact that when you and I were talking about this, I could totally see the gears in your head working because we were talking about Zaitsev coming back and he's like, well, do you think he's going to be handcuffed to Shabbat? Yeah, probably. But does this mean Shabbat's not going to play, it's going to play less than 30 minutes? And I'm like, well, do you want to see Zaitsev play 20 plus? <laughs> and you're like, no, no, wait, I want us to tank. Yes. <laughs> Just in a span of a minute. No, wait, yes. Yeah. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is the thought process that goes into Mr. Tim Jesse on the Third Line Plug Sunscast. Immediate answer. Reflection. Contradiction. Yeah. Synthesis. The one final comment I do have to make about Ilya Kovachuk, and this is just for me personally, because as you know, like I've I've playing drop in hockey and I have all new gear. The one thing I always noticed about Ilya actually two things I noticed about Ilya Kovachuk in this game. Number one. Maybe this is just me because I'm a warrior whore, but fuck, I love the look of those gloves he's using. Oh, those warrior gloves are so nice. And that's just me because I own a pair of warrior gloves and they're really, really comfortable to wear. They look really sleek. And a lot of the players that I knew back in the day, like Milan McCulloch had it, Kolbachuk had it, and a lot, like Eric Carlson has warrior gloves and he uses warrior shit, so I love it. But another comment I made in this, and they were showing the clips... Or not clubs. They were showing the pictures of him as a Atlanta Thrasher. I have to say though, the old Atlanta Thrashers baby blue jerseys were low key, actually kind of underrated. Yeah, they did a lot of things that were stylistically different than other NHL teams. Yeah, except their first jersey when it was just brown. Yeah, but like those baby blue ones, stylistically, they work. They do, and they were different. They were different than the other team's jerseys. They didn't look like the Falcons or the Hawks or the Braves or any of the other teams in Atlanta, right? Or even the Georgia teams, like the college-wise. Well, even they didn't even really fit the NHL jersey mold, especially with, like, the Atlanta. Like, sure, everything kind of had to fit into the Reebok edge look, but you had, like, the Atlanta down the one arm. That was cool. Yeah, I'm just going to quickly look up these Atlanta Thrasher jerseys because while I'm not crazy about the the really bright baby blue, I think the dark baby blues were really nice. 
<laughs> while I do agree that the one sleeve saying Atlanta, you know, it was kind of unique to the jerseys, but I don't know. I think it kind of just sticks out, kind of like a sore thumb when you look at the rest of the jersey. Because the other sleeve doesn't have that. It's just straight blue with the, the Thrasher T. Yeah, the logo. But I don't know. I like, I think it, like the fact that it does kind of stand out, it's kind of cool. Like it's just different in a unique way and I like it a lot. And it's a shame they couldn't get away with that on their away their away uniform. I know, but their away jerseys weren't too bad though. Oh, that's for sure. I still don't know how a team with Marion Hosa and Ilya Kovalchuk couldn't win a playoff game. Well, and they were fronted with Mark Savard, too, on center. I guess the answer is uh, Kerry Lettinen. True, and their defense. But honestly, you know what? Hockey is a team sport, and where it's not like basketball where you can have two or three really, really good players, and you could just take down teams like nothing, right? And the Thrashers may have had one really good line with Hosa, Savard, and Kovachuk, but you need the rest of your team as well doing well as well. That's for sure. And it's a shame, though, because, like, I kind of wanted hockey to work in uh, Atlanta. That's a big market. And if they could get a team clicking there. But then again, Atlanta sports are just hard. The problem with Atlanta is that you, you are right, is that it is a very big market. However, they're very fair weather fans. And really, those fans, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm generalizing all Atlanta sports fans, but to me, the general feeling I've always got with Atlanta is that they are very fair weather, and they really only support their teams when they're winning. As you saw with the Thrashers, when they were selling out every game for the year after they made the playoffs, or the Atlanta Hawks when they were good, the Falcons when they went to the Super Bowl, the Atlanta Braves when they were, you know, the team in the 90s when they won, like, 17 fucking division titles but that's the thing and you look at these teams now and kind of the same with arizona like they really only support the teams and they only sell out when they're winning yo this is completely off topic but andy sutton was on that team the 2006-2007 thrashers tim tim are you asking me or are you telling me i'm telling you so you're an expert i was there you're an expert. Yes. You said you saw it. You said you were there and said, you know, you're an expert. And I was there. Because you're not an expert. <laughs> but yeah, that, actually, I really hope hockey starts to do something in the desert. Well, you know what? Like, the team is getting very good in Arizona right now with Taylor Hall, Phil Castle. But they also have the young guys like, you know, your Clayton Kellers, Darcy Kempers, guys like that who they're building towards something really good. And for me, I'm kind of the same boat as you were saying about Atlanta. I want to see hockey work in Arizona because that's a market that would be very, very lucrative for the NHL because, yeah, that's one thing if it works in cities like Pittsburgh or Chicago or whatever, but if you put work in a places where hockey's so untraditional, then you're really tapping into something there with those markets. For sure. Look at Carolina. Florida's the same way, and I think Florida's going to be hard fought. That's true, because, you know, the Panthers are really getting good now, and of course the Lightning have secured their dominance in Florida, and Dallas doing pretty good, but I think if they put a team in Houston, I think Dallas may have competition in that. And of course you look at the competition with the California teams, right? Where you have LA, Anaheim, and Chicago, San Jose. 
So but you, have you want to talk about fair weather fans. Houston fans are about as fair weather as it gets. That's... They lost an NFL team, for God's sakes, in Texas. I know, and they blew a fucking huge lead there uh, Sunday. Yeah, I I like watching the Texans because they play a what what the hell is defense offense only type of game. So basically, you like watching what the Senators were in 2015. All yes. all offense, no defense. Yeah, give me the points. But uh, yeah, I have no idea how they did that other than pure chokery. I don't know. Couldn't tell you, Tim. They couldn't tell you either. So, Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make on this game before we head it off into the close for another evening? No. Okay. First of all, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it because, believe me, Tim and I love recording them for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network where you can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We're also on Twitter at Third Line Plugs, our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901HoneyBadger. I'm at GreatWhiteGipster, G-R-8-W-I-T-E, Gipster. If you want to shoot us an email to talk about the games, top of the hour, or you want to show some love to the Atlanta Thrashers, shoot us an email, thirdlineplugsensecast at gmail.com. So, Tim, for this coming week, we've got a couple of homecomings this week, Tim. Tuesday. Zach Smith and the Chicago Blackhawks return to Ottawa. Thursday, Mark Stone returns with the Vegas Golden Knights. And Saturday, okay, we're playing the Flames Saturday. We don't have anybody uh, on the Flames right now to play his sense. Those are teams that just don't trade often. I think the last one was Curtis Lazar. That is true. Although I will say, even though next week's episode is episode 69, and I was going to name it Ha Nice, I feel a better episode title is One Night Love Affair for Mark Stone. <laughs> Jesus. Or I might just go with Ha Nice. You never know. Ha Nice is always a way to go. That's true. Until next week, guys. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jesse. Go sense, guys. Woo!